Welcome to Lock It Down Sports. I'm your host, Lock Hoover, and as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Lock It Up Media. That's Lock It Up Media. And of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. You can check me out on Facebook, check me out on YouTube. Simple as that. Lock It Up Media on Twitter. Thank you for joining us to Lock It Down Sports today. Right here on Stream Studio. Look forward to uh, diving into the world of sports. Um, we've got some SEC recap, of course, or Big Ten, a Big Twelve TV deal, Auburn co- coaching surge, whole lot more. But first, let me tell you about my friends at Stream, Stream Studio. It's a multi-camera live streaming platform that allows you to go live in less than one minute. It's a video podcast, live webinar streaming platform that allows you to stream to multiple platforms at the same time. So give it a look, give it a, and check it out. Stream Studio. Now, it's another another fun week in the SEC and college football as a whole. I mean, you had a very, very important one in TCU and Texas based on the overall landscape of college football and even more for the big, 12 as a whole what happens with that because TCU knows they need to win out and be undefeated to go to the college football playoff they took care of business against Texas but they've still got a tough one in Baylor and don't slip on Iowa State and then of course the uh, their conference championship game so they're by uh, no means cruise control because they've still got some battles coming up as well. And then you have other other SEC matchups, which we'll get into. And then we'll get into this Auburn coaching search, who, what a mess that is at Auburn. I mean, I feel like they've got a good stabilizer right there in Carnell Williams, someone who wants to be at Auburn. He's got Auburn in his blood. And you gotta love him being the interim coach right now. Like I said, we'll get into the Auburn coaching search here. And then also didn't get to touch on this because of some uh some issues earlier with um but Calvin Ridley, former Falcon, got traded to the Jaguars. And this is an interesting the trade deadline uh, for the NFL a few weeks ago, and this is a really interesting one for the Falcons' compensation. So if he gets reinstated by by a date, hadn't said when by his date, it's worth at least a fifth round pick. Otherwise, the Falcons get a sixth. So if he makes the team in 2024, he gets at least a fourth. The Falcons get at least a fourth. If he hits playing time milestones, it's a third. And if he gets a long-term deal done, it's a second. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack and a lot of um, contingencies on that. But I think it's really a win-win for both teams in the fact that the Jaguars get a premier first-round talent, first-round top-of-the-line Receiver. He would be their number one in Jacksonville right now if he stepped on the field. 
Of course, he can't right now because he's um, serving suspension for betting. Last year, funny enough, he bet against his current team, the Jaguars. So how ironic is that, right? But, like I said, it's a win-win for both. For the Falcons, Calvin wasn't stepping on the field for them again based on how last season went and then him getting suspended. He wasn't stepping on the field, and the Falcons were able to get something for him outside of just straight up releasing him. So if it turns out to be a sixth, okay, that's fine. But it's got all these caveats where it can build and grow into something more for the Falcons, which is great. It gives them something instead of nothing. And then on the baseball front, the Bravos, they did, they've had some little minor deals as uh, they signed Nick Anderson, who has had some injury history, but has had some good years as well. So it's a low-risk, high-reward sort of thing for the Braves to add depth to that bullpen. He signed a split contract where he gets 875000 if he's on the big league roster, and I want to say 150. Hundred fifty thousand if he's on the minors. So a split contract, how that works out. And then the also Braves brought back Jesse Chavez, which is not a surprise. His last two stints in Atlanta. Um, besides a non non guaranteeing deal, so it's a non so it's a non roster deal where he'll be an invited to spring training. He'll make one point two if he makes the roster. So. That wouldn't surprise me if uh, Chavez does make the opening roster for the Braves, but I think this has more, why they signed him this way, more has to do with the uh, roster crunch and what they're doing and how they're trying to maneuver the roster with the upcoming uh, Rule 5 drafts and they get their 40-man roster set, like, this, this surprised me, like just today, uh, with the Braves making some moves for the 40-man roster, uh, they made a little minor trade with the Rangers, uh, they got a relief pitcher, and the corresponding move was DFAing Jackson Stevens, which is shocking to me. That's the route they went as a solid middle reliever, because he pitched some big innings for Atlanta. And it wouldn't surprise me if he gets scooped up and claimed and the Braves probably get maybe cash consideration or a minor prospect of some sort for him because he was a solid big league reliever this year who obviously came out of nowhere. So something uh, something to watch. It'll be a little free agent frenzy um, early on, I believe, as a... Rizzo just signed back to the Yankees. So there's that as well. I mean, it's it'll be fun fun to watch with these roster crunches and seeing who goes where and early early in the early going before the hot stove of free agency of the big shortstop four shortstop sweepstakes where that happens where each of those big ones as lands whether that when create create Carlos Correa, boy, that was hard. Uh, Andrew Swanson, Xander Bogarts, and Trey Turner. Um, like I said, the big four of where they sign and what they um, what they get is going to be the other 
interesting, fascinating thing for for them. Um, now, let's get into some college football. As I've been, you know, watched Gabe see the Tennessee Missouri game, and I want to touch on that before I really dig back into two weeks ago the Georgia Tennessee game. But let's first address this Missouri Tennessee game where Tennessee did what they did and they had to. They responded after what happened in Athens. They absolutely responded and Hooker took a little while to get in the groove, but he was back in the groove and that was the supposed 13th ranked defense in Missouri. 13th ranked defense and Tennessee put up 66. 66. No hangover, no let down, no let's battle. We got to battle this one out back and forth. It was a little bit closer maybe than comfort in the early going, but they were able to spread it out, stretch it out, and just continue to score points and drop a big one on Missouri. And that's what they had to do because they have to win with style points. They have to increase the margin to impress the playoff committee. That's big and that's going that's gonna matter. It's Tennessee's this fun offensive sexy team, and that needs to play in the eyes of the committee. And we'll get into college football playoff um talk and rankings a little bit later in the show. But like I said, I want to dive back into this uh UGA uh Tennessee game as like I said had little um issues um speaking with you here recently as I mean if there if there's any questions concerns about who the number one team is and was I mean it was Georgia obviously and they came out and they were dominant from the from the start really and out by the by the from the start from a defensive standpoint offense got off and it was a little bit shaky that turnover in the opening drive from Georgia I'm thinking okay how does Tennessee respond because in my head I'm thinking this could be an Alabama type back and forth shootout and hey let's see what happens Obviously, it didn't turn out that way, but does UT score the opening drive? Obviously, they did. They hit that field goal, and it's like, okay, this is big. Tennessee could end up stealing a possession from Georgia, and obviously, that's that's a win. But on Georgia's end, they could be looking at, you know what? It's a win as well because the explosive Tennessee offense, we only allowed a field goal. That's big. So it was that back and forth early on. But after that, it was Georgia, Georgia, and more Georgia. I mean, Georgia was able to run the football in that first quarter, score points, and just grind and lean on you. And then the, the, the they got, like I said, that defense really made Hooker uncomfortable. It was... It, watching that game, 
you didn't see you hadn't seen that from Hendon Hooker all year. Obviously, you didn't really see it much in the Missouri game, but they're not in the level of athlete and defense that Georgia is. I mean, in Tennessee's second possession, he had a big overthrow in Jalen Hyatt. If he doesn't overthrow him, Hyatt might be gone. That could have been a touchdown right there, that throw. Or at the very least, minimum, let's say that's another field goal. That's another three points right there. Instead, you turn it around and Tennessee's forced to punt. And you, based on that, it kind of made me wonder, like, all right, the defense has to make a stop for it to play out how I think it is kind of a back-and-forth shootout for Tennessee. Fortunately, they did. Tennessee made a defensive stand to make Georgia the punt, which was big and very important. But here, to me, was like the biggest turning point of kind of, oh, okay, they're serious. So when it was 14-3 to Georgia, and the Tennessee defense had to make a stand with 148 left in the first quarter. My thought was, if Georgia scores a touchdown here, Tennessee's not going to be able to catch up being down 21 to three with our uh, the way our defense plays and the way our our fast explosive offense plays. Georgia ended up scoring to make it 21 to three. I'm looking down. I'm like, oh. There's a lot, a lot of catch-up here for Tennessee to get back in this game. And the way Georgia's defense was playing, you didn't didn't have a good feeling that that was going to happen. It being in Athens, this was also a credit to Georgia's defense, no doubt about it. This is the first time you saw Hooker scrambling and moving and being uncomfortable in the pocket, especially in that first quarter. They say noise wasn't an issue, but you have six false starts. Six false starts. That puts you behind the sticks. The crowd's noise did affect them. As much as they don't want to say it, the crowd noise definitely affected them. Now, it was at this point late later in the game. To me, this was an obvious one. It was Tennessee's first fourth down. It was a fourth and one on about the forty-five yard line. Of course, they have to go. The way the game was mo, the way the game was, the current situation, they had to go. And I that that's a that's a that's a fine call in my opinion. Now, so moved into the second quarter. There's about five minutes left. Georgia's interception into the end zone is huge. Absolutely huge. Because if Tennessee continues to drive, or if they score, that makes it 21-13. Just like that, they're back in the game. 21-13, around five minutes left the second quarter, okay. You know, you, you feel good. You've recovered a little bit. You're able to move some offensively and get some production. And 
I mean, that right there was obviously Hooker's second missed throw. And it was obviously a good good coverage by Ringo to pick that off in the end zone. Huge, huge play. And that's really what it that's really what it like came down to. It was a defensively dominated game by Georgia. So Georgia to me played about as clean as a game as possible outside of that fumble. But that outside of that fumble in the first half. And you saw it. And this is exactly what Kirby Smart said. They had to play. They played man-to-man. And they won those battles. That's what they had to do. They took away Tennessee's big, long, explosive plays. And they kept Tennessee under 100 yards. They only had 94 yards on the ground. So here's some like one of my takeaways from this. And it's a punch-counterpunch sort of thing. They were able to watch everything Alabama did wrong in that game defensively. Running a sim- similar type offense, uh, excuse me, type defense, they saw how Tennessee was able to exploit Alabama. Yes, Tennessee was playing a similar type defense, but you knew they were going to get some different looks and some changes, and that's exactly what happened with Alabama being able to um, uh, Kirby watching Alabama and seeing what worked and what didn't work, and he was able to implement implement that game plan. Now, yeah, Georgia's got some guys, and not many teams are going to be able to do that defensively. Georgia's got five top top three recruiting classes the last five years. You've got talent on top of talent on top of talent. And know what? That's what you're supposed to do. That's why in your national championship conversation every single year these last three to four years. That's what you do. And they've been very successful doing that. Now, on defense, I was very surprised that Tennessee wasn't able to get to Stetson Bennett like they're able to get to Bryce Wilson. So that was that was very telling as well. And on more on the Georgia defensive front, I mean, they probably played their best defensive game of this season outside of maybe Oregon. If you want to count Mizzou, sure. But it's a very stout defense, and it obviously put a stamp on them being the number one rated team in the country. Before I move on, let me tell you about my friends at Stream Studio. They're a multi, multi-camera live streaming platform that allows you to go live in less than a minute. You got podcasting, webinars, streaming platforms, all that good stuff on Stream Studios. Check it out. Give it a listen. Give it a plug and go enjoy. Try it for yourself. Now, the other game I want to get into was the Alabama-LSU game. Alabama back and forth slugfest meet last week 
against Ole Miss, and that officially eliminates Ole Miss from the conversation of being SEC West champion to play in the SEC championship game. LSU, a drag out 13-10 dub over Arkansas. I mean, obviously, big pressure. LSU has to win out because they hold the tiebreakers over both Bama over in the this SEC West and how things shake out. So they have to win and win and win. So it's very, obviously, very important. And I want to get into, like I said, again, some of this Alabama-LSU game, which was amazing. Absolutely amazing game. What transpired and what took place. And just the cojones, shall I say, of Kelly to go for it in overtime to go for the win. That's very telling to me of two things, really. One, I think he has trust. He had trust in his players on that role, that momentum that he had to go for it. 4-2 to win the football game when he didn't have to yet. I'm usually always the proponent of, you know what, let's extend this game as long as possible, stretch it out, but once you get to the second overtime now in in college football, it's a go-for-two play. You don't start at the 25. So... Maybe he had a feeling of his defense was gassed, and I'm gonna win. I'm gonna go go win it right now. And that's exactly what he did, and it obviously was a huge, huge win, and of course crippled Alabama to not even be considered for the playoffs. They are absolutely eliminated from the college football playoffs now. Actually, I mean, not officially, but they're not a two-loss team, not even getting in, especially if they're not even playing for the um, SEC championship game. So, impressive by LSU, and they've got an outside shot based on how the committee looks at it when it comes to college football playoff, and that's exactly where we're at right now. Where I think it's uh, it's probably a no brainer in the top four, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, TCU is probably your top four. You've got Georgia, I mean you got Tennessee sitting at number five right now. Uh, it it has to be Tennessee has to get in if they run the table and they are one they have a one loss team sitting in that number three or that number four seed based on a few things. I mean. Tennessee has the best wins of all the one-loss teams. Yes, you um, that Alabama win might have taken a hit because they lost to LSU, but don't forget, they drummed LSU as well. Tennessee drummed LSU down in Baton Rouge, and people want to moan, groan, and complain that, oh, it was a noon game. It wasn't hostile at night. Well, Tennessee had to show up at noon. 
excuse me, that's a that's an 11 a.m. kick down there. How is Tennessee able to show up and be ready to go at 11 a.m., but LSU's and their fans weren't? That's not a Tennessee problem. That's an LSU problem. They went in there, they kicked butt and took care of the business. Another thing with the one-loss teams, just an interesting little note here um, I saw on Twitter. Tennessee's combined record of opponents is leading the country. Tennessee's combined record of opponents is 50-31. and 31. LSU is next at 50-31. and 31. Then you have Georgia at 48-33. and 33. You have TCU, who's probably going to be in the four slot at 41 and 40. Oh, and then Ohio State, 40 and 41. Southern Cal, who's got one loss, 40 and 41. And then Michigan, undefeated right now. Obviously, they've got a matchup boiling in two weeks against um, Ohio State, but their combined opponent's record is. 38 and 41. Outside of that, Tennessee has the third hardest schedule in the country. Third. They've come out of this with one loss so far. It's it's a thing. And it, it they're gonna very I think they're gonna slide in to that number four spot once someone loses. And San Tennessee runs the table. Wins out, beating South Carolina on Saturday, and then Bandy in two weeks. It's a pretty hard thing to keep them out because Ohio State and Michigan are both going to have a loss. One of those teams is going to have a loss because they're facing each other. Yet TCU, who I'm not a believer in, they've still got two games and a conference championship game. I don't think they're the strongest team so it really going to come down to what the committee is going to do with Ohio State I mean say TCU runs the table you'd have Ohio State or Michigan as your two say TCU might move up as the three and then one of those three schools with Tennessee Michigan or Ohio State with one loss. And then it comes down to the the committee's committee's factors. And some of it to me has to do with brands. Who's the biggest brand? Who makes the best TV show and program for these four schools? In the past, Tennessee has, but that was 15 years ago. Is it still relevant? I mean, they ha- Tennessee hasn't been in a contending conversation even remotely in a long time. Ohio State, been to multiple playoffs, won a natty recently. Michigan is always one of the most overhyped love teams around, and they're big blue, they're Michigan, their fans are going to travel. I think... The country knows SEC fans, at least, and the National Committee should know that UT travels. So I haven't seen 
have the playoff um, ranking shakeout. Obviously, that's going down tonight. So we'll have to see what happens with them. And then I think another big thing that clears the deck as well is Ole Miss losing to Bama. So now they're out of it with two losses. And Oregon losing to Washington. They're out of it with two losses. So really, it's really coming down to, at this point, four teams, or excuse me, five teams. And then you've got Southern Cal kind of uh, circling. They've got one loss and outside looking in as well. So that's another shakeout. It'll be interesting to see where they're valued if they move up to six. It would would be maybe a likely spot for them. So we'll let's uh, wait and see, obviously, as this transpires. Of course, two more games and uh, conference championship games, as they say. Still a lot of football left to be played, and a lot of times these things work themselves out. Speaking of working themselves out, very smart of the Big Ten, excuse me, Big 12, to work themselves a TV revenue deal out. They're going to get $380 million in annual revenue. Interesting enough, that's $160 more than a deal with Texas and Oklahoma, since obviously they're leaving to go to the SEC. The total deal is $2.28 billion in TV deal, which is this is smart of them too, to spread themselves out of both on Fox and ESPN. And to me, I think this is, this is important for them to get the deal done first. Because they beat the Big 12 to the punch, who's in uh, contract talks and negotiations. I feel like it almost stabilizes the Big 12 conference as well. And here's here's the twofold to that. I think it, it was more stable, I think partly because no other conference really wanted the rest of those schools. I mean, maybe a... Um, Oklahoma State going to the Big Twelve, uh, Pac-12 of, of some nature, maybe. But now, the Big 12's got a deal. Maybe the Pac-12 schools end up joining the Big 12 because they get the TV deal done. It's more stable. And like I said, the Pac-12's not close to even closing a TV new TV deal. And they're also talking to streaming companies right now, whether it's Apple or Amazon, things of that nature, which could affect them because they're not going to be able to be seen by everybody. Which, in turn, could could um, be a merger for the Big 12 of... Some of those schools, Pac-12 schools, merge with the Big 12, and they also take along their streaming company, that uh, streaming company to join them in part of their package. Where or do the Pac-12, Big 12 combine to make one big conference? So then you have the TV deals of ESPN and Fox, and the streaming deal, whether it's an Apple, Amazon Prime. 
things of that nature. Something to watch and uh, see what see what happens. But like I said, big, in my opinion, for the Big 12 to strike a deal right out of the gate. And they get more than their current deal, even with Texas and Oklahoma leaving. Big, big deal for them. And then finally, it wasn't a surprise but Brian Harson obviously getting let go a few weeks ago from Auburn. I mean, it just didn't work out for him in Auburn. Twelve and nine, uh, uh, nine and twelve total, and just things I've been reading and hearing about about Auburn and about Brian Harson. I think he didn't really have much of a chance to succeed and thrive. He's supposed to be an offensive guy obviously we didn't see that in the SEC but one I think one of the issues for him was a lot of the big booster money guys backers at Auburn weren't behind Brian Harson. that's what I've seen that's what I've read and that's what I've heard with multiple coaches when it comes to how it functions and operates on the planes so it's that and there's also, you know, you saw some rumblings, and I and I quote, when Derek Mason left, a well-respected, regarded defensive coordinator left for Oklahoma State, a probably a bilateral move, but took a lot less money to be the defensive coordinator. Kind of scratch your head and wonder what that's all about. Well, there's a report they had, Harsons had some disagreements with maybe some internal staff and who to be on his staff. And Derek Mason comes out and says, like, look, I, I've I've coached in the SEC. I, I I understand the landscape and the layout of it. And Brian Harson goes, What? You mean Vanderbilt? That's that's a big slap in the face. And then you have Mike Bobo leave. Um, well-respected offensive coordinator, obviously a lot of SEC experience, and uh, did a good job for Georgia as it, when he was our offensive coordinator there. He leaves, gets fi- leaves, so it's kind of kind of suspect of what's uh, you know what's what's really going on, what the internal struggles were, and the internal issues. And then, I mean, obviously, so the ru- the rumors, the rules, I mean, not the rules, the um, the names are out there. Hugh Freeze, I mean, he goes and beats Arkansas two weeks ago at Liberty. You know what he? You know what he did at Ole, at Ole Miss. Obviously, he had the off off the field issues, but offensively and what he's done. Obviously, keep a name on the big one over there at Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin. I mean, to me, that would be fun. He already faces. Nick Saban every year, but just to him to be in the exact same state at Auburn, knowing Auburn, Alabama is the biggest game for that state, dealing with that every single year, that would be that would be fun. And of course he could still, you know, spar with Jimbo Fisher of calling him a clown and things of that nature, well, all the, the Twitter spat and Jimbo Fisher calling out 
all these coaches at the uh, SEC Media Days last uh, last year or this year. Be still be some fireworks, I think Kiffin will enjoy. And then obviously there's some other ones. Matt Rule, what he did at Baylor, building up Baylor to a um, school that's actually respectable. Of course, Carolina Panthers didn't work out for him. He's already gone, so he's out there. I think would be could be a good fit. And then go take Nick Saban's offensive coordinator, Bill O'Brien. Obviously, all the success he's had as the Texans' head coach. And then he was very successful in the college ranks at Penn State. So those are some names to look out, to watch for when it comes to Auburn. It's going to be fun to see who lands there and what they do, of course, the Deion Sanders name's been trickled out there as well. So it's it's something to watch, something to follow, and to see if the boosters at Auburn actually get behind their next upcoming coach. Because you can win at Auburn. You can. It's a more up-and-down type program. But you can win. You can see be successful over on the plains. As always, you can follow me at Lock It Up Media. That's Lock It Up Media on Twitter. You've been listening to Lock It Down Sports. Talk to you next week. Later.